0: Welcome to episode number eight on the My Story Podcast. The My Story Podcast features interviews with leaders, influencers, and entrepreneurs who tell us their story and the life lessons they've learned along the way. Hi, my name's Conrad Weaver, and I'm your host for the show. I'm a filmmaker, entrepreneur, and storyteller, and I love sailing. Hey, if you have a boat invite me out i'd love to go and i'm so happy that you've stopped by to listen to the show because we have an amazing interview today with patricia mulroy pat as she's known has been a leader in the international water community for more than 25 years she serves as a senior fellow for climate adaptation and environmental policy and also as a practitioner in residence for the Saltman Center for Conflict Resolution at the UNLV William S. Boyd School of Law in Las Vegas. She also holds a faculty position at the Desert Research Institute and serves on the board of directors of the Wynn Resorts in Las Vegas. She is one busy woman and she took time to talk to us. During her long tenure as the director of the Southern Nevada Water Authority, she led Nevada's delegation in the negotiation of numerous agreements with neighboring Colorado River, Basin states, and the country of Mexico. She's an expert negotiator. You're going to love this interview. But first, a word from our sponsor. Furnace Hills Coffee Company roasts amazing coffee. They have a great story, too. I'll tell you, once you drink a cup of coffee from Furnace Hills, I promise you'll never want coffee from the big name brands again. Why? Their beans are sourced directly from great farmers and it's roasted fresh. You order it today and you'll get coffee beans that have been roasted this week, maybe even the same day that it's shipped to your door. The other cool thing about Furnace Hills Coffee Company that I love is their mission is to employ people with developmental disabilities. Their chief roaster is Erin. She has Down syndrome and even has a coffee blend named after her. And just for the My Story podcast listeners, when you order from furnacehillscoffee.com, use the coupon code MYSTORY, all one word, and get 25% off your order. Check it out. It's special coffee roasted by special people furnacehillscoffee.com. And now on to today's show and my interview with Pat Mulroy. Well, Pat Mulroy, welcome to the program today. I'm so glad you joined me here on the My Story podcast.
1: Well, thank you, Conrad. I'm delighted to be here.
0: So give our audience just a little bit, a snapshot of who you are and what you've accomplished in your life.
1: Well, um, I am the former general manager of both the Las Vegas Valley Water District and the Southern Nevada Water Authority. And I held that position for uh, almost 30 years. During that time, I experienced just about every challenge that a utility executive can face. We had the biggest growth boom, the um, biggest threat of running out of water, the biggest need for multi-billion dollar construction programs, the worst drought on record, and the worst financial crash to ever hit Southern Nevada. So it was quite the roller coaster ride. and it brought me into the whole Colorado River community. As part of my role, I eventually became the lead negotiator for the governor, um, representing the state of Nevada on all things on the Colorado River, and helped me- negotiate some of the most um difficult and the most impactful, um, agreements that have shaped this river community over the last 25, 30 years.
0: Boy, so your career, you've just had no problems. You've just been smooth sailing for 30 years. Yeah, it's been a cakewalk. (laughs) So, wow. Uh, and you and I met several years ago, you were so gracious and were, uh, you sat down for an interview with me for my film, Thirsty Land. And I just want to say again, thank you for doing that and being a part of that project. Oh, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Absolutely. So give us, uh, let's go back a little ways. So where did you come from? Where were you born? where did you come from? And how did you get to where you are today?
1: I was born and raised in Germany. My aunt, My father was a civilian in the United States Air Force. He was the first civilian to hit German soil in the waning years of World War II, and he became ultimately civilian personnel officer for the Air Force. So I grew up mostly in Germany. We had a brief stint in Libya and Tripoli before the Americans were thrown out and Wheeler's Air Force base was shut down. I only really spent my sixth and seventh grade year here in the United States um, in D.C. when my dad was at the Pentagon, went back to Germany. Um, after graduating high school, I went to the University of Maryland in Munich first. Then I went to the University of Munich. And while at the University of Munich, I was offered a scholarship. Um, for my senior year and a guaranteed teaching assistantship for my masters and I had always wanted to live in this country and so I saw that as my golden ticket and that scholarship offer came from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. So I went to a map to see where Las Vegas was. (laughs) I had no clue. So on August 24th, 1974. I landed in Las Vegas and knew nobody. Wow. The closest person I knew was in Pensacola, Florida. Wow. Which, given the fact, if you know me, you know I'm spatially challenged. On a map, it didn't look that far from Las Vegas to Pensacola. (laughs) Easy drive, right? (laughs) I had European dimensions in my head. Um, I really had no concept of how vast the... Um, American West was, or the distances one has to travel. So I got my, finished, got my, uh, bachelor's, um, went on and got my master's, and then was offered a, um, research assistantship at Stanford University for my PhD. So I went to Stanford. Um, family circumstances, evolved to where I never completed it. So since Las Vegas had become home I came back to Las Vegas and I had over the summers always worked for the Center for Business and Economic Research. Through it I had made a great deal of friends so I, um, with their help, was able to secure a position Um, with the county, I worked over, I worked at the county, um, in the county manager's office as part of their legislative team, which is where I became intrigued with politics and negotiation and intergovernmental relations, um, until 1984, at which point the board asked me if I would be willing to move over to justice court and uh, ferry the first the legislation through the legislature um, creating a position of justice court administrator. I mean Las Vegas was in its infancy and it was it was just starting to emerge as a metropolitan area and so a lot of change was occurring during those early 80s. So I went to justice court um, became the first Justice Court Administrator, and then decided working for judges was not <laughs> up my alley. So when I was offered the number two position over at the Water District, I accepted and went over. And that began my 30-year journey in the world of natural resources and um, utility work.
0: Wow. So you then eventually became the general manager of the Water Authority.
1: 1989.
0: Yeah. And so what was that like to manage water resources for what, all of Southern Nevada?
1: Well, when I first got the position in 1989, I walked into quite a mess. Southern Nevada was using up its Colorado River allotment faster than anyone had ever expected,
0: is that because the city was growing? And
1: Yes, the city was growing at leaps and bounds, and their conservation was a foreign concept in southern Nevada. And because, obviously, when you start facing that kind of a resource shortage, people start panicking. And so there was open warfare between all the various retail utilities and war with the state, if you will, and so my first job, first challenge really, was to create some peace.
0: Hmm. So how did you do that?
1: Well, I, <laughs> it's pretty funny, actually. Uh, first thing I did in, in getting the job is I went to every city, single city manager and apologized for the way the district had been behaving and wanted to, and said we need to create a new slate um this is never going to work the way it does and got them because i already had somewhat of a relationship with people in this valley was able to get them to be willing to enter into negotiations on how we could collectively move forward mm. and that actually led to the creation of the southern nevada water authority okay. there was no water authority before that mm. And in creating the Water Authority, we did some things that were anathema to Western water. We threw away our priority water rights Hmm. and said between various urban areas, first in time, first in right, makes absolutely no sense.
0: So for the uninitiated, kind of explain what that is.
1: Well, Western water law is very different from Eastern water law, and without getting too technical and legalese, the the essential rule in the West is if you were the first user of, and you were the first to be awarded a right to use water, then in the event of a shortage, you would receive yours and everybody who comes thereafter will be shorted. Mm -hmm. So it's first in time, first in right, and it's a Western priority system. The way it was working between the entities in Southern Nevada was that as we were increasing our take on the Colorado River, every time we took more, it locked it in for ourselves um, to, at the expense of everybody else. So the reality would have been had there ever been a drought back then or had we run into shortage. The Las Vegas Valley Water District could have let water run down the street while people in Henderson, Boulder City, and North Las Vegas would have gone without, which Mm. made absolutely no sense.
0: And they're pretty much suburbs of Las Vegas, correct?
1: You you have to know this city to know where (laughs) one ends and the other begins. But don't tell various jurisdictions that. (laughs) They are very proud of their individual identity. Of course. And— Um, care very deeply about their independent roots and their independent constituencies. So we needed to create a level playing field. So saying we were going to throw out our priority water rights and we were going to pool our resources, we were going to enter into a shared shortage arrangement instead of a priority system And let's be frank, Conrad. I mean, the only time a priority system is of any use is during a shortage. Hmm. So, if you say we will share a shortage across jurisdictions, that really eliminates the need for any kind of priority pecking order.
0: Right. So, what was their response? Once the
1: authority, yeah, once the authority had been created and we got our water accounting um, in order it empowered Southern Nevada. We were able to enter into our first agreement with Southern, with um, the federal government was one in which we were able to use our return flow credits, which means for every gallon of treated wastewater that we send back to Lake Mead through our uh, wastewater treatment plants, we can take an additional gallon of water out of the lake over and above our allocation so, in other words, you're, you are looking at a net, right? What is your right. net footprint in the lake rather than, um, a, a, a gross value accounting system? Well, that instantly ended the crisis in Southern Nevada because we were able to increase our resources by almost 60%. Now, ironically, as we were negotiating, For the Southern Nevada Water Authority, one of the first things I had to do was declare a temporary moratorium on any more, any new connections.
2: Hmm.
1: So it's still lovingly called the Valentine's Day Massacre because we (laughs) announced it on Valentine's Day, 1990, and is going to live forever in the history books of Southern Nevada as one of those heart-stopping moments. But we had no choice. We had more water committed than we knew we had water resources available and we needed to put a whole new structure in place, get a new system in place with the development community on how we issued permits. And only then could we begin to open the doors again and allow for more commitments to be made. And we needed the additional resources.
0: So you pretty much stopped construction
1: no, what we did is any we, we stopped new commitments. So there were lots of construction projects already in the pipeline, and I think that's why it worked. Um, it was only at the end of that time period that it was starting to get really tight and tense with the development community um, because they were starting to run into problems with the banks. The banks weren't willing to finance or put up financing for projects that couldn't guarantee a water supply. So there was a lot of re-education that had to happen in Southern Nevada. Hmm.
0: So what's the process you use for negotiation when you go into situations like this?
1: The biggest lesson I've learned over the years, it's not what you say, it's how you listen. You know, everybody feels that when you go into a negotiation, you are going to be most successful if you are the most eloquent or the strongest you have the strongest ability to put forth your position or your organization's position well that's not true at all hmm. what you need to do is listen to what the other person is looking for
0: it seems like it would put you in a weaker position
1: absolutely not it puts you in a stronger position Understanding those that are sitting across from you is tantamount. Because look, any compromise, everybody wins. Well, you're never going to get to everybody wins unless you have a deep understanding of what your opponents or counterparts in those negotiations are having to bring home themselves. What is it they need? There will probably be a lot of fluff around it that's not essential but what is the essential ingredient that they absolutely have to have? And once you understand that, then you can begin to think about what does a common solution look like?
0: Hmm. So how long did it take you to learn these things?
1: (laughs) Well, I was a, you have to understand I'm half Irish and half German. So I have a, Irish temper and German stubbornness, which doesn't necessarily bode well in all instances. Um, it took me a while of beating my, butting my head up against a wall. Um, and I was never one to be shy about uh, Southern Nevada's, I mean, I could do Rodney Dangerfield for Southern Nevada so fast. Um <laughs> We were the smallest allocation on the river. We'd been left behind in 1922. You get Everything, no respect, we, right? Uh, we get no <laughs> respect. We've been totally overlooked. This is our moment in history, and we're not going to be overlooked anymore. And then as the conversations began to get um, more intense, I don't know. It was instinctive. I began to listen. Um, because at some point, you, you have to start steering toward a solution.
0: So in listening, at what point then do you bring your ideas to the table?
1: Oh, listen, you're not shy about putting your ideas on the table. That's not what I meant. But have you ever sat across from somebody that no matter what you say, they keep repeating the same thing about their position over and over and over and over again? and they don't hear what you say, it's irrelevant what you're saying, right? It's frustrating. Right. That's what I'm talking about. Right. I'm not saying don't put your position forward. I'm saying once you've done that, and once you've staked out your turf, and where you're going to be positioned, after that, figure out where everyone else is. Listen. Be an active listener. Don't be a ears closed simply you know on autopilot regurgitating the same things over and over again.
0: So do you think that's important just for a young entrepreneur maybe they're look, working their first big deal that they want to land the big sale they want to land they Absolutely. Need to be an active listener. Absolutely.
1: And I have to be honest especially if you're talking about in a sale environment the most annoying thing on the planet to me was a salesman coming in and telling me what I needed. Hmm. I would rather have the salesman come in who has a, a suite or a certain option and see what I need, right? Mm-hmm. And is there, a, is there a fit for that? Is it something that is of use? I mean, if you're selling something... You want that something to be a value to the buyer, Um, not just something that you in your imagination on what it is that a certain buyer needs, envision, you need to understand your buyer.
0: So what was it like then going from a kind of a local regional negotiations with other parts of the city to negotiating on a national scale with the Colorado River uh, issues.
1: It was an interesting transition. And in order to understand that time period there in the early 90s when we emerged on the river as a full partner, and now bear in mind, because we had the Southern Nevada Water Authority and all the various users were united So there wasn't a disparate audience within the state of Nevada. It gave us a negotiating strength that no other state had. Hmm. They had disparate users. They had both ag and urban. They had conflicts between state and regional entities. We had combined because once the authority had been created, the state was willing to change the composition of our Colorado River Commission and put three members of the um, Water authorities board on the Colorado River Commission, which made an enormous difference and uni- gave Nevada the opportunity to speak with a united voice. Mm-hmm. Coming into this environment, however, you're talking about a river community that hadn't sat down and really talked to one another since... Probably the late 20s, early 30s.
0: And there had actually even been threats of, you know, one state invading the other, right?
1: Yes, I know. (laughs) Arizona had commissioned its Navy. I still can't figure out why a state, (laughs) no ocean needs a Navy, but whatever. To um, cross over uh, the waters behind Imperial Dam to protect itself against those um, Huns coming out of <laughs> California. So yes, there is lots of lore. There's lots of myth, but there's also was a long history of antagonism. Hmm. There were some unfortunate lawsuits that had been filed in the sixties that set the tone for the river for 30 years. What people don't understand in many instances is that the worst thing you can do is go to court if you go to court you fail
2: Hmm.
1: because the minute you go to court the opportunity for compromise diminishes dramatically you have to harden your position you become the psychophant of whatever position you are taking and whatever cause you're pursuing in court And it hardens and divides people even worse. Coming out of some of the more egregious Supreme Court decisions, people were beginning to realize that even if they had won the case, they lost the war. Because once you win in court, all that does is tee up your adversary to look for a way to mute that win. Hmm. So you win the battle and lose the war at the end of the day.
2: Hmm. Wow. The,
1: it took us, a, I would say, and I have to give Bruce Babbitt a tremendous amount of credit. We were very, very lucky. We had the right Secretary of State, in, I mean a Secretary of Interior, in the right place at the right time. Uh, President Clinton appointed... Bruce Babbitt, the former governor of Arizona, to be Secretary of Interior. He kept that position for the entire eight years. He was a lawyer, very experienced in the realm of water law. He understood the politics um, and the personalities on the river, and he herded cats for eight years. Finally, right before he left, um, and that was really the period of time where I did a lot of learning on what it takes to construct a deal and how to approach these kind of interstate negotiations, because we could be seven foreign countries. Hmm. I mean, we're that divergent. Um, different histories, different origins, different bodies of law, very, very disparate group
0: and that's because and you say seven countries because seven states take their water from the colorado river correct
1: absolutely we signed a compact in 1929 that divides the colorado river amongst the seven states and it's called lovingly the law of the river um in my early years, I often likened the law of the river to the stone tablets Moses received. <laughs> it was indelibly etched in stone, and it, there was no wiggle room, and it was rigid. So the trick over the last 25 years has been to find the flexibilities in the law, which there are many. Because once you peel that law away and you get past some of the more draconian interpretations of it, It essentially is a law that allows seven states to do whatever seven states can agree to do. But no one state, no matter how big, can rule its neighbors. It takes unanimity.
0: So how has all these uh, experiences in negotiation and making deals, how has that impacted you in other areas of your life?
1: I have become the commensurate pragmatist. Um, let me give you an example. I, obviously, as the drought set in and um, things got tense on the river, there we in this country cannot seem to let go of our philosophical battle or almost religious battle about whether climate change is real or unreal. Hmm. Whether... We believe the scientists or or, um, accept the science of climate change or whether we don't. And I had become a pragmatist and still am a pragmatist. I really don't care whether you believe in it or not. As long as you're making the necessary changes and we're walking a pathway that gets us to where we need to be to adapt and to mitigate, I really don't care whether you are a... Um, true believer of the science of climate change or whether you're a climate denier, it's completely irrelevant to me. I learned to hear past the rhetoric and I still do that today. Um, I hear a lot of rhetoric coming out from a lot of sides. And I think to myself, okay, what's behind this, right? Mm-hmm. What is really going on here? And how do we get past this?
0: So what is the answer
1: I think the answer, and we'll come right back to where I started, start listening. I mean, there's always a seed of something in even the most outrageous proposition,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, whether that something is fear-based, whether it's a legitimate challenge that a group is facing, whether it doesn't really matter what it is. Mm-hmm. There's always something there that is... Very real and if it's real in the minds of the people that are espousing it, then it is real.
0: Sounds like you need to write a book about negotiation.
1: That sounds like fun. <laughs> I <might> do that
0: <laughs> You can put me as the uh, as the one who uh, kind of put the idea in your head or maybe you already had the idea.
1: <laughs> no, I didn't Thank you Conrad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so what are some of the books or even people? Who have most influenced you along the way?
1: Well, there's probably one person that influenced me more than any other, and it's really interesting that you should ask me that question today, because he passed away yesterday. Oh, I'm um, so sorry. He was the individual who was really my first boss. He was the county manager at the time when I first entered my professional career. He... Then be- His name's Richard Bunker. He then became the chairman of the gaming control board and he had quite the history. He was chairman of the gaming control board at the same time that Senator Reed was chairman of the gaming commission and it was the two of them that essentially ran the mob out of southern Nevada. Mm. Um, and both of them had quite a difficult tenure in their positions, having to send their children to school with armed guards, and it was quite a wild time in Southern Nevada. It was our real growing up phase. And then later on, after he left the Gaming Commission, he became uh, the president of the Nevada Resort Association, and in that capacity, he was eventually made appointed to the Colorado River Commission by the governor and was chairman of the Colorado River Commission, he was a commensurate negotiator. Hmm. You would never see that man lose his temper. He never name-called. He understood his adversaries quite well. He was an amazing bridge builder. And so I learned so much from his demeanor, from his poise, from his negotiating skills, whether they be at the Nevada legislature, whether they be state to state, whether they be international, some people just born with that skill Mm -hmm. and he was born with that skill. Wow. So if you ask me who really was a mentor, and I think- All of us along the way have our mentors. The most impactful influence came from him.
0: Wow. So what's the next big thing for you?
1: The next big thing for me. That's a very interesting question. You know, I've transitioned and I am still going around giving speeches, trying to help push people together and Providing a wake-up call in various venues through my speaking engagements, um, and I'm still working here at the Boyd Law School in Southern Nevada. Uh, but I also joined the Wind Board of Directors, and I know they've had we've had a very tumultuous year. Hmm. I again had quite the roller coaster ride <laughs> coming onto a corporate board, um, but I think. That's an area that's intriguing to me, corporate board work. And so I'm looking for other boards to, to join. Um, I think what's been happening in this country as, um, government has become so gridlocked and so divisive, a lot of the progress that's being made nationally is coming from the corporate sector. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of climate adaptation, a lot of social change, a lot of thinking um, around moving this country, this economy, um, and the American society forward is coming from the corporate boardroom. And I think it's a real opportunity. I've become very disillusioned with the body politic. Um, I'm not a team sport individual and it's looking more and more like team sports to me. Mm-hmm. Um, if a, if a Republican says something, 16 Democrats jump down his throat and vice versa. Right. Um, it's pretty irrelevant. And we've lost our ability to listen. We've lost our ability to compromise. This country was not built on philosophical confrontations. It was built on the art of compromise. That's what democracy, especially a Republican democracy, is all about. And we seem to have lost our way in that. I'm hoping one day we'll regain our footing. But for right now, we're kind of... Um, on quicksand.
0: You know, I see that, and, and, and I don't watch much television at all as far as the, these talk shows, but th- those I have watched occasionally, there is no listening going on. It's all about getting my point across and my point of view and shoving it down your throat, and there's no you know, stopping and just paying attention to what the other person is saying.
1: I agree. I mean, some of these talk shows, when you listen to them, the volume, the screaming back and forth—you can't understand what anybody's saying. It's crazy. They're just trying to scream on top of each other. That's what I'm talking about, Conrad. That's right. what is a recipe for failure. That's never going to work.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow, those are those are some uh, wise words coming from someone who's uh, who's lived it. Well, I want to say. Thank you so much for what you have done and for your willingness to be on this program and, uh, again, to to be on in the film that I produced. And I think that uh, any board who would bring you on would be very lucky to have you.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate that, Conrad, and it's been a pleasure to participate in this.
0: Pat, thanks so much for spending time with me on today's program. I really appreciate it. And I just lo- always love talking to you and hearing your stories. Thanks so much for listening. And if you like what you're hearing on this show, make sure you hit the subscribe button and please share it with your friends and family. I'm always eager to hear your feedback. Those five-star reviews are always welcome. It really helps get this podcast out to more listeners when you click on a star. Next week, we are in for a different type of interview and I think you're going to really enjoy my conversation with Denny Wilson. Denny is the founder, president, and CEO of FI Community Housing Incorporated. He's an author, a speaker, a humanitarian, a philanthropist, and an all-around awesome guy. He founded the FI Community Housing in 1995, which is today Ohio's largest peer-operated recovery community. Denny's past informs his present mission in fighting the opioid epidemic. By the age of 25, he was addicted to several drugs, including heroin, crack cocaine, and alcohol. And after he went through a 21 day recovery program, he was awarded a 14 day stay in a sober house. And he came under the wing of a mentor who created a safe space and gave him hope. So Denny's new book makes its its debut next week and I get to attend his book launch party, and we get to hear a bit of his story right here on the My Story podcast that's coming next Monday, May 20th. And if you've enjoyed the music on today's show, it comes from my friend Drew Davidson. You can find all his music on iTunes or Spotify or on his website at drewdavidson.com. The My Story podcast is a production of Kanjo Studios, an award-winning video production company whose focus is helping you tell your story visit conjo click on the blue get a quote button and let them know what you need then watch your stress melt away as their team does the magic of producing your next video or film project that's conjo studios.com telling stories that matter last if you have an idea for an interview you'd like to hear send me a message and i'll see what i can do Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you again next week on the My Story podcast.